1: Hello again my fellow Flyers. Welcome to the Plane Crash Podcast. This is your captain of the podcast, Michael Bauer. I'm happy that we've gotten to spend so much time together as of late. I feel like we're really getting to hang out on a regular basis these days and that makes me feel good. We here at the Plane Crash Podcast like feeling productive and we like hanging out with you. Thanks to all of you out there that have been reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts and all the other places that you guys listen to podcasts. We like reading your reviews. We read them all. It's really encouraging to know that you guys like the show. It makes us want to keep on investing all that time into doing it. If you have a moment and haven't reviewed the show yet, please do so. We really appreciate your time and your friendship. We are on Twitter at plane crash Pod. That's plane crash Pod. If you want to follow us there and send us a message or a suggestion for a future show, please do it. Today on the 11th episode of Plane Crash Podcast... We will be taking a close look at Eastern Airlines Flight 401, a scheduled flight from JFK in New York to Miami International in Florida on December 29th, 1972. Joining us again on the podcast today is our producer and all-around quality human being, Tess Andrade. Hi, Tess.
2: Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for being on the podcast. Everybody always loves it when you're on the podcast. Oh, well, thank you. Um, How's your Halloween costume coming along?
2: It's coming along. I think I have most of the key parts.
1: Oh yeah, what are you going as?
2: I am going as Laura Dern in Jurassic Park.
1: Oh, that's very appropriate because most of you probably don't know this, but Tess Andrade... Looks very similar to Laura Dern.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you.
1: Yeah. How many times a year do you think somebody comes up and says, you look like Laura Dern?
2: I would say that is a once or twice a year. Yeah.
1: Well, that's still enough to say that you look like Laura Dern. (laughs) So all you had to do was buy some clothes, huh?
2: Yeah. It's kind of a lazy costume.
1: I like it. I think it's like a costume inside a costume. All your friends are going to see that and be like, Tess, everybody says you look like Laura Dern and you're Laura Dern tonight. (laughs) Yeah. Well, one other question I had for you um, concerning dressing up is what is your style on a plane? Do you dress up before a flight or do you wear the same kind of thing you would wear to do laundry at a laundromat?
2: I really like that you're asking this question and I actually had this conversation with a friend recently. I think there are two major schools of thought. I have a friend who really believes that It should be treated as a special occasion. She wears her Sunday best. She dresses up. um, And she kind of is old school about flying. She Mm. treats it like they used to in the 1950s or the 60s. That's cool. Yeah. I myself... I'm a little bit more casual. I like to wear a nice pair of socks, some spandex, just keep it comfortable.
1: Yeah, you go for comfort. I think I do that as well. I feel like for a long time, I just kind of wore jeans and a t-shirt. But I want to be one of those people that's like your friend. I've been thinking lately about how flying is a miraculous experience. You get to go to an airport, get in this little metal cylindrical container, and nine hours later, you're in Paris from Los Angeles. I feel like that's a miracle and we should treat it like this beautiful experience that going from point a to point b just isn't about being in these two places but the journey in between there's a beautiful time and we should dress up and read a book and have conversation on the plane with other fellow passengers i think uh, i'd like to treat it as more of a event a special event that i you know get to take part in
2: yeah i agree i think um it might make people more apt to talk to you too if you're wearing your pajamas that kind of indirectly communicates i'm here to sleep
1: yeah so i think i'm gonna try and dress up you guys out there don't have to listen to me because i'm not dictator of the world but let's all try and you know possibly dress up and treat it as the special event that it is
2: i think i'm gonna try and step it up a notch in the fashion department
1: good for you i'm gonna try it as well I read a statistic in Newsweek recently that an estimate at 25%, a quarter of the population on planet Earth, is afraid of flying. I know in the past you've said you're a bit of a nervous flyer, correct? Yes, I am. Well, I am as well. I know we touched upon this in our very first episode, but I thought it might be great to revisit it and get a little refresher on the improbability of being in a plane crash. Estimates vary from study to study, but recently an instructor in risk communication at the Harvard School of Public Health Calculated that we have a 1 in 11 million chance of dying in a plane crash. You're 10 times more likely to die from a lightning strike and 3 times more likely to get killed by a shark. And guess what? It's really unlikely that you're going to get killed by lightning and really unlikely you're going to get killed by a shark. So it's really, really unlikely that you're going to get killed in a plane crash. Do you get nervous when you get in your car and drive?
2: No, no, I don't.
1: Well, according to the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, you are 86 times more likely to die in a car crash than a plane crash. Why is it that we get nervous going on a plane and don't get nervous getting in our car when we're 86 times more likely to die getting into our car than walking onto a plane?
2: Uh, For me, I think it kind of goes back to control. When I'm behind the wheel, I feel like I'm more in control of the situation When I'm in a plane, I'm sort of putting my life into someone else's hands. And I also feel like it's just a more novel experience. It's not that familiar to me to be suspended in midair. It makes me nervous.
1: I think that's an excellent point. I think maybe if we flew, you know, four times a day like a pilot, that maybe we wouldn't be nervous about it. That uh, One of the reasons that we don't get nervous about getting in the car is that we're always in a car. We get in our car, you know, multiple times a day. And I think the other thing is just media, what we see on TV. You know, I feel like a lot of our fear is controlled by the news. And when you turn on the news, you see terrorism and you see shark attack and you see plane crashes. All those events always make the news. And I think we're just kind of trained from an early age to be like, oh, I should be afraid of those things. Those are scary events. I don't want to end up on the news in some sort of death story. And we don't see on the news stories about diabetes or heart disease, things that can, you know kill a lot of people every year, we see plane crashes and we see tornadoes and disasters. And I think we're kind of programmed to feel those fears that we see on TV.
2: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think the media has just kind of trained us to be afraid of these things.
1: Well, before we get started, I like to point out at the top of every episode that I'm not a pilot, not an expert in the field of aviation. I've always been a bit fearful of flying. So this podcast serves as a type of anxiety exposure therapy for me. I'm hoping the more I learn about planes, the less I'll be afraid of flying. We realize that what we are discussing is a tragedy. Human beings lost their lives, and these human beings have family members and neighbors and friends. We by no means want to be careless or inconsiderate of that fact. We just see these accidents as historical events, and we think it's worth discussing why they happened, how they happened, and how they contributed to making air travel as safe as it is today. Eastern Airlines Flight 401 was a scheduled flight from JFK Airport in New York to Miami International Airport in Miami, Florida on the night of December 29, 1972. The captain of Flight 401 was Captain Robert Loft, known to his colleagues as Bob. He was 55 years old at the time of the accident. Captain Bob Loft was hired by Eastern Airlines on September 20th, 1940. So at the time of the accident, he had been with the company for 32 years. He became a captain with Eastern Airlines in February of 1951. He had 29,700 flying hours, 280 hours in the new Lockheed L-1011 TriStar planes Eastern had recently brought into their fleet. Captain Bobloff's medical certificate stated that he wore correcting glasses for near vision. His home was right next to a golf course in Plantation, Florida, a city in the Miami metropolitan area. On the morning of December 29, 1972, he worked in his yard, then flew from Miami to Tampa, where he and the rest of his flight crew would fly Eastern Airlines Flight 164 from Tampa to JFK in the early evening. Once they were at JFK, the same flight crew would fly Eastern Airlines Flight 401 from JFK to Miami. Flight 401's first officer was Albert Stockstill. He was 39 years old. He was originally from Louisiana, and he joined Eastern Airlines as a flight engineer in August of 1959, so he had been with the airline for 13 years. He was an Air Force pilot and had 5,800 flying hours under his belt, 306 in the L-1011 TriStar. The flight engineer or second officer for Flight 401 was Don Repo, a 51-year-old originally from Massachusetts. He joined Eastern Airlines in September of 1947 and worked for a number of years as an aircraft mechanic before getting his flight engineer certification in November of 1955. He had 15,700 flight hours and only 53 hours on the L-1011 Tristars. The plane, as we've been mentioning, was a Lockheed L-1011 385-1. It was delivered to Eastern Airlines on August 18th, 1972. So at the time of the incident, the plane's brand new, only four months old, which explains why the flight crew only has a couple hundred hours of experience flying these planes. Over the four plus months that the plane had been in service, it had accumulated 936 flight hours and 502 landings. In 1972, these L-1011s are the newest, most state-of-the-art aircraft on the market. They're wide-bodied jets that are sold to airlines as being spacious and comfortable for their passengers. The ceilings are eight feet high. There's music headsets, temperature control, plush seats. It's supposed to be a privilege and exciting for passengers to get to fly on these new planes made by the Lockheed Corporation in Palmdale, California, just north of Los Angeles. Eastern Airlines had 12 Tristars in its fleet, and this plane used for Flight 401 was Airplane 310, the tenth of 12 Tristars Eastern Airlines would receive. Flight 401 had 163 passengers, the flight crew of three in the cockpit, and 10 flight attendants, for a total of 176 human beings on board. One of the passengers was an Eastern Airlines technical supervisor that was riding in a jump seat in the cockpit named Angelo Donadeo. So the plane takes off from JFK in New York at 9.20pm, and it's a routine flight for the first two hours and 12 minutes, down the east coast of the United States to Miami. Another plane that was inbound to Miami, slightly ahead of Eastern Airlines Flight 401, was National Airlines Flight 607, which had a hydraulic issue and couldn't get their landing gear down using their hydraulics, so they had to crank the gear down manually, The pilot of the National Airlines flight requested that fire trucks be brought to the side of the runway just to play it safe in case there was an issue. National Airlines Flight 607 was cleared to land on Runway 9 Right. Eastern Airlines Flight 401 was in its approach to the runway it was cleared for landing on, which was Runway 9 Left, which ran parallel to Runway 9 Right. At 11.32 p.m., Captain Bob Loft radios over to air traffic control in Miami Miami Tower Eastern 401 just turned on final. The captain is giving the tower a heads-up that Flight 401 is on its final approach. Captain Loth then tells his first officer, Stockstill, to throw them out, meaning to drop the landing gear, and Stockstill obeys the command. Air Traffic Control responds to the captain, Eastern 401 heavy, continue approach to nine left. Flight 401 is descending in altitude towards the runway 9 left, passing through 3,500 feet, then 3,300 feet. When Captain Loft and his first officer Stockstill still, notice that the light confirming the nose gear has dropped into place is not illuminated. It's not turned on. On the display panel in the cockpit, when you drop the landing gear, there's three green lights that light up, confirming that the landing gear has dropped and locked into place. One says right gear, one says left gear, and one says nose gear. On flight 401 at 11.33 p.m., shortly after they dropped the landing gear, only two of the three lights are green. The left and right gear are both lit up, but the nose gear light isn't turned on. So as the plane is descending towards the runway, Captain Loft says, I gotta, I gotta raise it back up. God damn it. Now I'm going to try it down one more time. Captain Loft is thinking, maybe there was an air, and if he raises the landing gear and drops it again, maybe the nose gear light will turn on. 20 seconds pass as the gear goes up and goes back down, but the nose gear light still won't turn on. First Officer Stockstill says to the captain, well, want to tell them that we'll take it around and circle around and fart around? Stockstill has already done the math on this situation, and he knows they need more time in the air to figure out this problem. They're too close to the runway, and they can't land the plane until they can confirm that that nose gear is down. So he's suggesting climbing in altitude, getting some more time to figure out if the nose gear is actually down, and the light is burnt out or malfunctioning, or if there's a bigger problem and the nose gear isn't actually coming down. Captain Loft radios over to air traffic control in Miami. Well, uh, Tower, this is Eastern uh, 401. It looks like we're going to have to circle. We don't have a light on our nose gear yet. The tower responds, Eastern 401 heavy, Roger. Pull up, climb straight ahead to 2,000, go back to approach control, 128.6. 128.6 is the frequency that they're supposed to be on. Flight 401 was below 1,000 feet at this point at 11.34 p.m. And First Officer Stockstill says, 22 degrees, 22 degrees, gear up. When Captain Loft corrects him and says, put the power on at first, Bert, a boy. Leave the goddamn gear down till we can find out what we got. Flight engineer Don Repo then offers to help out. He asks the captain if he wants him to check the nose gear light via a procedure known as the Christmas tree test, where you turn on every warning light on the cockpit display so you can see if the bulbs are working properly. Repo does the test, and still the nose gear light won't light up. So at this point, it seems very likely... That the nose gear is actually down and the light bulb on the cockpit display is just burnt out. But there's a very, very slim chance that the light bulb is burnt out and the nose gear is actually having a problem and not coming down as well. They have to confirm one way or another that this nose gear is actually down and locked into place before they can try and land the plane. So at this moment in time, it's now 11.35 p.m., Only three minutes into this issue, First Officer Stockstill is flying the plane with his yoke or control column. Seated behind him is Second Officer Don Repo, and Captain Loff is in the left seat. The three landing gear lights on the cockpit display are close to the First Officer, but he's flying the plane right now. So Second Officer Repo and Captain Loff are trying to reach for that nose gear light. First Officer Stockstill says, Uh, Bob, it might be the light. Could you jiggle that? The light? Flight Engineer Repo says, It's got to come out a little bit and then snap in. Captain Loft says, Yeah, oh, I can't get it from here. So now you have the three officers in the cockpit, preoccupied, and focus on trying to get a light bulb to work so it can confirm that the nose gear is down and they can land this plane. Second Officer Don Repo says, It's right. I can't make it pull out either. Flight 401 has finally reached 2,000 feet, The altitude air traffic control told them to hold at. Captain Loft says to his first officer, put the son of a bitch on autopilot right here. See if you can get that light out. So now the autopilot's clicked on and altitude is set at 2,000 feet. And everyone in the cockpit gives their full attention to trying to get this light bulb fixed. It's now 11.36 p.m. And first officer Stockstill removes the light from the control panel Second officer Don Repo quickly inspects it, and Stock still puts the light back into the control panel, but he puts it in sideways, and the light is now jammed incorrectly into the panel sideways and still isn't working. Captain Bob Loft is now frustrated, and he says, you got it in there sideways then. Nah, I don't think it'll fit. You got to turn it one quarter turn to the left. Finally, Captain Loft is over dealing with this light bulb issue, and he asks the second officer, Repo, to go down into the space below the cockpit and see if he can get a visual on the nose gear and confirm that that nose gear is down with his own eyes. There's a small square door on the floor of the cockpit and a short ladder into the space below. As Repo is going down the ladder to do what his captain asked him to do, the first officer, Stockstill, is still messing with this light. Stockstill says, This won't come out, Bob. If I had a pair of pliers, I could cushion it with that Kleenex. Repo stops on the ladder and says, I can give you pliers, but if you force it, you'll break it. Just believe me. Stock still says, Yeah, I'll cushion it with Kleenex. Repo replies, Oh, we can give you pliers. Captain Loft then loses it and says, To hell with it. To hell with this. Go down and see if it's lined up with the red line. That's all we care. Fuck around with a goddamn 20 cent piece of light equipment we got on this bastard. In the cockpit voice recorder, everyone laughs after Captain Loft's outburst. Second officer, Repo, is below the cockpit, and Captain Loft and Stockstill are still messing with and talking about the light. Captain Loft says, Did you ever take it out of there? Stockstill replies, Hadn't until now. Captain Loft, Put it in the wrong way, huh? Stockstill says, It looks square to me. I don't know what the hell is holding that son of a bitch in. It's always something. We could have made schedule meaning they're going to miss their scheduled arrival time. The time is now 11.40 p.m., eight minutes into this nose gear light issue. An altitude C-cord warning sound chimes through the cockpit, but this doesn't capture anyone's attention. Captain Loft says in reference to the nose gear, We can tell if that son of a bitch is down by looking at our indices. I'm sure it's down. There's no way it could help but be. Stockstill replies, The test didn't show that the lights worked anyway. At 11.41 p.m., Repo climbs up the ladder back into the cockpit and says, I don't see it down there. Captain Law says, you can see the indices for the nose wheel. Ah, uh, There's a place where you can look and see that they're lined up. Repo replies, I know, a little like a telescope. I can't see it. It's pitch dark, and I throw the light, and I get nothing. Captain Law flips on a switch above his head, maybe giving power to the light Repo was referring to, and tells Repo, now try it. And Repo descends back into the space under the cockpit. Air traffic control at Miami radios over. Eastern, uh, 401, how are things coming along out there? Captain Loft replies, Okay, we'd like to turn around and come back in. The tower says, Eastern 401, turn left, heading 180. First officer Stockstill then suddenly interjects, We did something to the altitude. Captain Loft, confused, says, What? Stockstill asks, We're still at 2000, Right? Captain Loft says, hey, what's happening here? The cockpit voice recording ends there at 11.42 p.m. and 12 seconds. Eastern Airlines Flight 401, that had been flying over the Everglades in South Florida, slams into the marshland with its left wing and left engine striking the ground first. The plane broke apart as it skidded across the ground for more than 1,600 feet. The fuselage broke into five different pieces and flames burst throughout the cabin, Over the time the plane skidded across the marshland, it managed to turn, and by the end the plane was skidding backwards. A National Airlines plane, Flight 611, radioed over to Miami Air Traffic Control. Ah, Miami Tower, this is National 611. We just saw a big explosion. Looks like it was out west. I don't know what it means, but I thought you should know. Many passengers on Eastern Airlines Flight 401 died instantly from being thrown from the aircraft. Many others were badly injured and covered in jet fuel and just had to wait in the Florida Everglades for rescue teams to arrive. Some other passengers were not injured at all and waited calmly outside the plane for help to come. It was a dangerous situation for those who survived. As I said, jet fuel was all over the inside of the plane and the outside of the plane, all over the surviving passengers. And in 1972, everyone and their brothers smoked. Flight attendants that survived mentioned that they were greatly concerned that someone was going to try and smoke a cigarette and light a match and everyone that survived would be burned alive. So flight attendants yelled to everyone to not strike any matches and the flight attendants and survivors started singing Christmas carols to try and calm those that survived. These people were injured and stuck in the Florida Everglades with snakes and alligators and having that human connection and distraction by singing together helped a lot of the survivors stay alert and Keep from panicking. A man by the name of Robert Marquis was on an airboat hunting frogs with a friend when they noticed the explosion nearby, and he directed the airboat towards the crash. Marquis sustained burns to his body from the jet fuel, but he spent the entire night and the entire next day rescuing survivors of Flight 401, ferrying them to safety. For his efforts, he was given a humanitarian award from the National Air Disaster Alliance Foundation. Captain Bob Loft died shortly after the plane crash due to his injuries. First Officer Stockstill was killed instantly. Second Officer Don Repo was taken to the hospital, but died shortly after arriving due to his injuries. Overall, 75 people survived the crash of Eastern Airlines 401 out of the 176 that were on the plane. So after the crash, there's a number of questions. Why did the plane leave its selected altitude of 2,000 feet when the autopilot was on? Why didn't air traffic control notice that the plane was descending in altitude and alert the pilots? Why didn't the pilots realize that the plane was descending in altitude? In regards to the autopilot malfunctioning, during the NTSB investigation hearings in February 1973... Two Eastern Airlines pilots, Daniel Gellert and Thomas Oakes, testified that the autopilot on other Eastern Airlines L-1011s had disengaged from its altitude hold function when they inadvertently bumped their control column. So similar to how your cruise control on your car works, let's say you're driving down the highway on a road trip and you decide you want to set the cruise control at 65 miles per hour your car automatically keeps the car going at 65 miles per hour without you having to keep your foot on the gas. The second you hit the brakes though, the cruise control shuts off and you're back in manual control of your car. Well, apparently the autopilot on the L-1011s worked somewhat similarly and the Eastern pilots didn't realize this. If you set the altitude on the autopilot 2,000 feet, the plane just keeps on flying at 2,000 feet. But if you move the control column, Exerting 15 pounds of pressure or more on the control column, the altitude hold function on the autopilot shuts off. So what investigators theorized in regards to Flight 401 is that when the captain turned around to talk to his flight engineer, Don Repo, and asked him to go down into the avionics bay below the cockpit to see if he could visually confirm that the nose gear was down, he leaned on the control column. He moved the control column with more than 15 pounds of pressure and was unaware that by this action, he had turned off the altitude hold function, switching the autopilot to control wheel steering mode. And suddenly the plane started its slow descent to the ground.
2: Was this a defect or was this just something he wasn't aware of?
1: I think it's something that he wasn't aware of. Oh, okay. As the plane moved below 1,750 feet, 250 feet below its selected altitude, a C chord or a chime was heard in the cockpit. This was a warning sound to say to the cockpit, hey, you're 250 feet from your selected altitude. The problem is the sound was loudest right next to the flight engineer's seat. And the flight engineer repo was down in the avionics bay, trying to see if he could visually confirm that this nose gear was down. The sound in the cockpit went unnoticed by the captain and first officer. The air traffic control employee on duty that night, Charles Johnson, testified that he had noticed that Flight 401's altitude was at 900 feet on his radar screen, and that's when he radioed over, saying, how are things coming along out there? Eventually, he saw Flight 401's altitude was CST, for coast, or meaning that the radar beacon was lost. So, unfortunately, his how are things coming along out there wasn't a very specific warning to Flight 401 that something was wrong with their altitude. Johnson testified that he was waiting for more radar sweeps, that occasionally he would get misreadings, and he didn't want to make assumptions about their altitude until it came in after a number of radar sweeps had happened. The NTSB investigation issued a conclusion for the crash of Flight 401. It stated... The NTSB determines that the probable cause of this accident was the failure of the flight crew to monitor the flight instruments during the final four minutes of the flight, and to detect an unexpected descent soon enough to prevent impact with the ground. Preoccupation with a malfunction of the nose landing gear position indicating system distracted the crew's attention from the instruments and allowed the descent to go unnoticed. So how did the crash of Eastern Airlines Flight 401 make flying today safer? Well, for one, this crash really highlighted the importance of delegating responsibilities in the cockpit. This crash was a great example of poor CRM, or Crew Resource Management, Cockpit Resource Management. No one was flying the plane. A tiny little burnt-out light bulb distracted the three guys in the cockpit from flying the friggin' plane, one person always needs to be focused on flying the plane, focused on the plane's instruments. I'm sure this crash is taught to everyone that trains to be a commercial pilot that a distracted cockpit can lead to a disaster like Flight 401. So, this crash led airlines to realize that training in CRM was necessary to prevent future accidents from occurring. Secondly, after interviewing many of the flight attendants on Flight 401, All of them lamented the fact that they didn't have flashlights readily available. After the crash, it was pitch black. They couldn't see, and it made finding an exit and helping survivors all the more difficult. Due to this wreck, flashlights are now standard equipment next to all jump seats. And all jump seats have shoulder harnesses now, because a number of the backward-facing jump seats on Flight 401 didn't have shoulder harnesses, which led to back injuries for a number of the flight attendants. Hmm. Third, the NTSB report recommendations led to changes to the L-1011 fleet within Eastern Airlines. Due to the C-cord going unnoticed by the flight crew of Flight 401, a flashing light was added as a warning when any plane leaves its selected altitude by 250 degrees in either direction. So those were the three ways that the crash of Flight 401 made flying safer. So, Tess, did you have any thoughts when listening to the story? I mean, how do you feel about the choices that the pilots made? Do you think they made serious errors, or were they just more unfortunate to have to deal with this series of unlucky events that tied together to led to the crash?
2: I feel like it was the latter. I I don't feel like they made any egregious errors, just from a layman's perspective, it seems like a few different things went wrong they were preoccupied of course with with figuring out this light situation and mm-hmm. weren't weren't monitoring their altitude properly but um it was also you know the air traffic control person that wasn't specific enough and mm-hmm. didn't warn them that they were at 800 or 900 feet and um it being so dark too probably contributed
1: i think you nailed it right there to me i find especially this crash and previous crashes that we've done recently it all seems to be about Dark, you can't see outside. Um, if they had been up flying above a city, they would have seen lights coming to the ground. It's the fact that they were above the Florida Everglades that were pitch black. There were no lights down there. So when they look out their window, they don't see anything. It's just pitch black. They have no reference point to be like, oh man, we're getting closer to the ground. I also think there was, you know, what we do here is just like Monday morning quarterbacking. And I always feel bad saying anything negative about the pilots. Totally, me too. One indisputable fact is that three guys completely paid no attention to their instruments or flying the plane. They were all super focused on this light bulb. And, you know, that's not a good thing. Um, Unfortunately, that led to the crash. But, you know, fortunately, we have this lesson to teach future flight crews that see this is a possibility of something that could happen at no point should you have a moment where all three people in the cockpit are focused on something other than flying the plane you at least need one person flying the plane the other two can work on the light bulb or figure it out but you just you know it was a bad delegation of responsibilities
2: yeah definitely it feels like they also might have just been too comfortable on the plane like they weren't paying attention to their surroundings enough
1: yeah. I feel like there were just like so many bad um, coincidences, again, that led to the mm-hmm. issue. The fact that they were flying over the Everglades, it was dark. The fact that this light was such a pain in the neck. Yeah. That like, you would think it would have been easy to pop it out and put in a fresh bulb and pop it back in. The fact that they just put it in incorrectly, and then it wedged in and incorrectly, and they really couldn't get out. The fact that the flight engineer was down... Below in the avionics bay, when that warning light apparently there's something called like a C cord that gives you a warning that you're 250 feet off of your selected altitude, and he had a little speaker right by his seat, and he happened to be downstairs while that went off. If he had been upstairs, just in that moment, he would have been like, "Oh, that's weird." Well, you know, guys, oh my God, are you know we're at 1,700 feet. We need to you know correct something. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I feel like a lot of the crashes we've talked about have been that way, where it was kind of like the perfect storm of events. And it makes you think or realize how hard it really is to crash a plane. A lot of things have to go wrong at the same time.
1: Yeah, you're right. It's always a chain of events. And the the thing you have to do is break the chain. And there's supposed to be protocols to kind of prevent that chain from going all the way to a crash there were just so many things that lined up perfectly for this to happen. I mean, the fact is the nose gear was down. It was locked into place. If they just had ignored that light and landed the plane in the beginning, they would have made their scheduled flight, but they couldn't do it because you didn't if you know, if you don't know that your nose is down and you're going to have to make a landing without nose gear, you need you know more prep. You want to get rid of all the fuel on your plane, you want to get, you know, foam on the runway possibly you want to get you know emergency vehicles there so they had to go back up and they couldn't come down until they could make a decision and knew what was going on with the nose gear i thought it was interesting how after the crash those that survived the wreck now had to survive the everglades that they're you know stuck in the swampland injured covered in fuel. There's no roads to get, you know, emergency vehicles to them and get them out of there quickly. There's snakes and alligators around. I thought that was an interesting aspect of the crash.
2: Yeah, I actually was going to ask if anyone was injured by alligators or something.
1: I don't think I read any stories about that, but there is an interesting note about the Everglades and the crash that many of the people that were injured on flight 401 had their wounds clogged up with mud from the marshland. And this aided them from bleeding out. So that was kind of an unexpected bonus of crashing into the mud. First off, the plane was kind of, you know, it was a gentler crash because they crashed into mud as opposed to concrete or something like that. And the mud clogged up their wounds. But the mud also had organisms that led to eight of the passengers getting infected with gas gangrene and all eight had to be flown to different hospitals to recuperate inside hyperbaric chambers that helped kill off the infection. So the mud stopped them from bleeding out, but the mud was also full of organisms that gave, made them sick and gave them an infection. Hmm. It's kind of an interesting side note. Yeah. Uh, another aspect of the...
2: Double-edged sword.
1: Yeah. Uh, another aspect of the crash that I thought was interesting was the story of Robert Marquis, this guy that was just fishing for frogs in his airboat, and was completely selfless. He put his life on the line. He said he jumped in the water and his legs and arms just stung from jet fuel. And this human being that could have just been like, oh, that's danger. I should get out of here. Instead, he said, that's danger. I need to go there and make sure people are okay.
2: Yeah. One minute he's fishing for frogs, the next minute he's a national hero
1: yeah saving lives putting his body in danger i think i hope that i would have a a similar reaction that i wouldn't be like oh that's scary and i could be injured i better go away i think the fact that he said people need help and i'm here and i'm gonna go help them is highly commendable another interesting aspect of the uh, crash that in the investigation they found out that the captain had a brain tumor and that this was growing in the part of the brain that controls vision. So maybe this had some sort of factor that, you know, made it easier for him to overlook things possibly he couldn't see as well as he should have.
2: Yeah. That's interesting. Did he know he had a tumor?
1: I don't think so. No. Hmm. So I think it was something they found out after the crash, but in in the investigation and they said that they didn't think that it had an impact, but you never know. And now Tess is going to tell us a part of the story of Flight 401 that she worked on.
2: Yeah, thanks, Michael. Although the majority of the plane that was Flight 401 was destroyed in the crash, some of the plane's parts, such as the galley and other key parts that were still in good condition, were salvaged to use on the other 11 -11 L-1011 Tristars that were part of the Eastern's fleet. Not long after these salvaged parts from Flight 401 were installed, flight crews and passengers aboard the planes reported some strange activity in the form of ghostly apparitions. Writer John Fuller talks about this in detail in his book, The Ghost of Flight 401, which was later made into a movie. He goes on to suggest that the cause of these strange happenings was the haunted parts from the 401 wreckage. These sightings were well known amongst the airline community and even written about in the 1974 U.S. Flight Safety Foundation's newsletter. The ghosts of Captain Bob Loft and flight engineer Don Repo were reportedly seen more than 20 times on other eastern Tristars that had been fitted with salvaged parts from the Flight 401 wreckage. According to the folklore, the two made it their afterlife mission to watch over the airline's fleet of planes and make sure what happened to Flight 401 would never happen again. It's worth noting that a lot of these paranormal sightings came off as extremely credible. The bulk of them came from people in reputable positions—captains, first officers, flight attendants, and even a vice president of Eastern Airlines, which I'll get to in a second— In many of these cases, multiple witnesses claim to have seen the same thing. At JFK Airport in 1973, an Eastern Airlines TriStar was getting ready to board passengers for a flight to Miami. One of the vice presidents of Eastern Airlines happened to be on that flight, and because he was a VIP, he was allowed to board the airplane before the rest of the passengers. As he made his way to his seat in the first-class cabin, he noticed a man in a captain's uniform and went over to chat with him. As they talked, it became clear to the vice president that he was talking to Bob Loft, who went into full-on ghost mode and proceeded to disappear before his very eyes. The vice president alerted a crew member, fearing this to be a bad omen, and a thorough search of the plane was conducted before any other passengers could board. On another flight out of JFK, a captain and two flight attendants claimed to have seen and spoken to Loft during flight preparations, and he reportedly vanished in front of them. They were so shaken by the incident that the flight was canceled. On another one of the L-1011 passenger planes that had been fitted with the cannibalized parts, a flight engineer who was carrying out his pre-flight check was surprised to find an Eastern 2nd officer already seated in the plane. He immediately recognized this man as Don Repo, who said to him, You don't need to worry about the pre-flight. I've already done it before vanishing. A few weeks later, another captain was checking the instruments on a flight from Miami to Atlanta. He saw the ghostly outline of Repo's face staring back at him and claimed that Repo said, There will never be another crash on an L-1011. We will not let that happen. In yet another account, a flight attendant claimed to have seen a man in a flight engineer's uniform, who she later identified as Repo, to be fixing the galley oven. Her claim was backed up by the fact that the plane's actual flight engineer had not repaired that oven and had not been seen on board at the time. On a flight from Miami to Atlanta, a flight deck crew were cruising along when they heard a knocking coming from the compartment below the cockpit. Afraid of what they might find, they were reluctant to investigate the source of the knocking, But after it continued, the flight engineer finally opened the hatch and found Repo's face staring back at him. Remember, that's where he was at the time of the crash of Flight 401, so it would make sense that his spirit would be attracted to that space. A flight attendant by the name of Faye Merriweather saw Repo's face looking at her in an oven reflection in the galley of a tri-star plane. Interestingly, the galley of this plane had been salvaged from Flight 401. Shaken by what she'd seen, she summoned a couple co-workers, one of whom was a flight engineer who had known Repo and recognized his old friend. Repo said to the three of them, watch out for fire on this airplane. The plane later ran into engine trouble and had to cancel the final leg of its journey. These sightings were reported to the Flight Safety Foundation, which commented that the reports were all given by experienced and trustworthy pilots and crew. We consider them significant. The appearance of the dead flight attendant was confirmed by the flight engineer. Passengers aboard these flights also observed strange occurrences. One female passenger was seated next to an Eastern Airlines flight officer who she said looked ill and wouldn't speak to her. After the woman called a flight attendant over, the man disappeared in front of them as well as several other passengers. The woman was later shown a photo of flight engineers and identified the man she'd seen as Repo. In another instance, a group of caterers loading goods into a plane for its next flight reported seeing a flight engineer in the galley disappear. A lot of disappearing. As convincing and numerous as these sightings were, not everyone was a believer. CEO of Eastern Airlines and former astronaut Frank Borman called the claims garbage. Eastern Airlines even considered suing the writer of The Ghost of Flight 401 for libel, after he suggested that Eastern Airline execs may have been involved in a cover-up, but Borman decided against it, fearing that it would only bring more attention to the book. Eastern Airlines even threatened termination to any employee that continued to spread rumors or ghost stories. Despite vehemently denying these allegations of aircraft hauntings, it was decided by Eastern Airlines that all salvaged parts from Flight 401 would be removed from the Tri Star planes. Once those salvaged parts were removed, all accounts of paranormal activity ceased.
1: Whoa, that was a pretty spooky story, Tess.
2: Yeah, are you terrified?
1: Uh, a little bit. I mean, what do you, I would say I'm probably someone that really doesn't believe in ghosts, but okay. the, the thing about this story that really struck me is that the vice president of Eastern Airlines and captains that are flying these planes and flight attendants, just the amount of people that said that this happened is pretty stunning.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that, um, groups of people saw these ghosts at the same time, it seems like Mm -hmm. I, I haven't heard too many stories like that.
1: No, it definitely piqued my interest and made me say, you know, the vice president, I imagine is an intelligent man is claiming that this happened I don't think this is good publicity for Eastern Airlines. it kind of makes me think something might have happened you know, and just the fact that these guys died in a violent fashion and they might have their spirit might have felt guilty about what happened and that they were you know on these planes that the parts had been put on that just all kind of adds up to a very interesting story I mean it makes sense that eastern airlines wanted these parts. Uh, They had these, you know, expensive planes that they just bought. One of them goes down and they're like, maybe we can salvage the parts. You know, these are brand new planes. We're going to be flying these planes for 30 years still. And they hook them up. And then all of a sudden all these things start happening. It's a pretty interesting story.
2: And it seemed to be a mix of people that knew who these guys were and people who didn't know them at all. Mm-hmm. And just identified them later in photographs.
1: Yeah. Well, it's freaky if they're like, oh, that I, that's the picture of the guy that I just saw. That's pretty crazy. So how do you feel about ghosts in general? Uh, do you believe in ghosts?
2: I don't rule it out. I'd say I'm agnostic. Mm-hmm. I'm open to it, but I, I haven't had any experiences that make me think they definitely exist. hmm um, I've always been interested in the occult. Like I collect tarot cards and I have a bunch of Ouija boards. I'd like something to happen to me, but nothing crazy has happened thus far.
1: Mm-hmm. When I was in college, I actually thought I saw a ghost <gasps> on, t- on two occasions. Really? Yeah, I, I went up to college. I guess it was sophomore year, and I woke up in the middle of the night and opened my eyes, and I saw like a little girl, like standing ah. in a chair, and I think. In retrospect, like I think that I was dreaming and just still like w- woke up and was still seeing tracers of my dream, but it freaked me out to the point that I reached out to touch mm. the girl and I touched the chair and I like mm. jumped on top of my bed and like slammed against my <gasps> window. I could have really hurt myself, but I got really freaked out to the point that I uh, slept at my friends' houses for like a couple weeks. I just really thought something was up. And now as an older person evaluating it, I was probably just like tired and woke up and didn't realize that, you know, I was still dreaming while actually being awake. But that's my one ghost encounter. So Hearing, she was
2: standing on the chair?
1: I think she was. Uh, the way I remember it Is I woke up and she was standing through the chair.
2: Oh that and is super uh, creepy.
1: That I touch, reached out to touch her and I touched the chair and I thought I touched her. And it freaked me out to the point that I was 20 years old and jumped up and slammed against my window, which was on the second floor, that if I had gone through the window, I could have died from a ghost sighting. (laughs) But it was probably just a a dream. So that's my encounter with ghosts. I would say this story that you just told uh, is very, very compelling and kind of makes me think that there might be some possibility to something out there because there's just so many uh, documented instances of people saying that they saw this it's pretty
2: crazy yeah definitely it's um kind of interesting too because i feel like airlines aren't really a place for ghost stories for folklore like that like it's very what happens on an airplane seems to always be very fact-based so it's kind of interesting that there have been no i I thought thought
1: it was an interesting story and i'm happy you did all that research for it thank you There was an update this past week in the Boeing MAX 8 saga test. A report by the Indonesian National Transportation Safety Committee was released on Lion Air Flight 610. Eventually, we'll do an entire episode updating our previous episode on Lion Air Flight 610, but as a quick update, the report blames nine factors that contributed to the crash of Flight 610. One of the central factors for the crash in the report was MCAS, the Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, which pushed the plane into a dive due to a faulty reading that the system had received from an angle of attack sensor. The report blames MCAS for taking information from only one angle of attack sensor and mentions the lack of documentation about MCAS in flight manuals or training sessions which could have assisted the pilots. The report also mentions that the FAA was too reliant on Boeing to police itself allowing Boeing to oversee the certification of its own new system. Boeing released a statement on Friday, October 25th, that stated, Over the past several months, Boeing has been making changes to the 737 MAX. Most significantly, Boeing has redesigned the way angle-of-attack sensors work with a feature of the flight control software known as MCAS. Going forward, MCAS will compare information from both angle-of-attack sensors before activating adding a new layer of protection. In addition, MCAS will now only turn on if both angle-of-attack sensors agree, will only activate once in response to erroneous angle-of-attack information, and will always be subject to a maximum limit that can be overridden with a control column. These software changes will prevent the flight control conditions that occurred in this accident from ever happening again, In addition, Boeing is updating crew manuals and pilot training designed to ensure every pilot has all the information they need to fly the 737 MAX safely. What do you think, Tess? Does Boeing's statement make you feel better about boarding a MAX 8 anytime soon?
2: You know, I'm not itching to get on a uh, MAX 8 plane anytime soon.
1: Yeah, I feel like I'd like it to come back to the market as a new name something And have them just be successful at flying for a year. And then I'll venture on one, I think. I think obviously they've learned from this, as we've learned from all crashes, uh, what the problems were and how to keep it from, from happening again. But I still don't feel amped to get on a Max 8. United Airlines had its United Airlines Flight Plan 2020 event on Friday, October 25th in Chicago. Where they announced several changes coming to the airline in the next year. They're adding 63 planes to the the United fleet, more comfortable seats to their wide-body planes, and in the year 2020, United will be focused on offering more vegan-friendly options for onboard meals. United serves 55 million meals every year to their 160 million passengers. New vegan options for 2020 include red beet hummus with vegetables, roasted curry cauliflower with pomegranate, and vegan stuffed grape leaf with dolma-infused yogurt. So United Airlines is getting classy and vegan-friendly. What do you think about that, Tess?
2: Well, I'm not vegan, but I'm happy that vegans will feel more welcome.
1: Yeah, I guess if you're on a plane and you are, you know, shooting carbon into the sky, the least you can do is just eat some vegan food.
2: Yeah, do you think they heard our last podcast?
1: I would say they probably all listened to it. (laughs) Qantas announced this week that they're mulling over a plan to add direct flights from New York to Sydney, Australia as soon as the year 2023, four years from now. They're also eyeing adding a London to Sydney direct flight as well. The New York to Sydney flight would be 19 and a half hours, and the London to Sydney flight would come in at 20 and a half hours total flying time. On October 19th, Qantas flew a test flight from New York to Sydney, Australia as part of their Project Sunrise campaign. The airline is currently researching how to best serve passengers on a a 19-and-a-half-hour flight. Fifty passengers were on this test flight, and they all got to sit in business class. The test flight took off from JFK at New York at 9 p.m., and the flight attendant switched all the clocks on the plane to noon, which was the time in Sydney. Passengers were encouraged to stay up for at least six hours before going to sleep, and spicy food was served to try and stimulate passengers and keep them awake. Qantas said they wanted to try and minimize jet lag and study how to improve health and well-being for their passengers on a long haul, 19 plus hour flight. 19, 20 hours is a pretty long time to spend on a plane, huh?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are all sorts of bad effects on your body if you're if you're in a plane for a long period of time.
1: Yeah, so I guess 20 hours is pretty long. I think in 20 hours, you could probably watch an entire season of Star Trek Next Generation. And those are 26 episode seasons.
2: You could do that. Yes, you could do that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we want to give a quick shout out to everyone that's been listening in New Zealand. Thanks for all of your support down in the Southern Hemisphere. We just noticed a good amount of peeps were listening from the Kiwi country and we wanted to say hello. Did you know that New Zealanders are called Kiwis because Kiwis are a type of flightless bird native to New Zealand? I'm an idiot and always thought it was some sort of like fruit reference. (laughs) I thought all kiwi fruit came from like New Zealand, but I was wrong. I'm wrong about many things, but I'm trying to learn, trying to learn. (laughs) Well, that's going to do it for today's episode of the plane crash podcast. We hope you all had a great Halloween and we hope you have an amazing November. We'll be back in probably like two weeks with a new episode. I hope you're choosing to work hard book vacations. Enjoy life. This is the only one we got. I love you all, and I hope to talk to you all very soon. Thanks again for all your support and love, and I will see you soon. Bye-bye.